humbly obey you and serve you and build your kingdom until your son, the risen Savior, returns in glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So today I want to talk about lessons from doubting Thomas. Uh, first thing we need to recognize is the importance of the resurrection. In fact, if you could hold that page in John chapter 20 and just skip ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you look at verse 14, Paul says this, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Then a little further down in verse 17, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Uh, my preaching right now is a waste of time. Okay? Uh, our faith, our faith in Jesus is useless. We're trusting in a guy who couldn't even conquer the grave for himself. How's he going to conquer the grave for us? You know, we go through life, you know, we think we're hot shots and we think we got it all together and this and that. No, there's this enemy called death. Blaise Pascal talked about that. That if you can't, if, if there's no victory over death, we all lose. This is why Paul in verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, verse 32, the second part of that passage, he says, if the dead do not rise, so he's saying if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the dead aren't going to rise. And if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So I'm telling you, on this Easter Sunday, the resurrection is so important that if Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago did not rise from the dead, leave his tomb empty, and appear to his disciples, the human life is nothing but one big, ugly Cruel joke. People amaze me. They go around thinking they're so smart and this and that, and they go through life and they get a college education so they think they're smarter than everybody else, and, and some of them actually were gullible enough to accept a lot of the garbage that's being thrust on them. I mean, you want to be an engineer, they're going to teach you truth. You want to fly a plane, they got to teach you truth. Okay? You want to be an electrician, they got to teach you truth. But nowadays, man, they're, they're, the lies of Satan are just being thrust on people. All kinds of falsehoods. All kinds of garbage and, and immoral doctrines. And people going around thinking they're smart and they got it all together. And they don't, even, they don't even have the solution to this thing called death. Man's greatest enemy. So Jesus of Nazareth did not bodily rise from the dead. And human history is nothing. Human existence is nothing but one big, cruel joke. Until you find a solution, deliverance from death, uh, life really isn't worth living. And that's why Blaise Pascal would say there's only two kinds of people that could be called wise. Those who seek God with all their hearts because they don't know him, and those who serve God with all their hearts because they do know him. The most foolish thing you can do is just assume, I'll go through life, 
conquer all my problems in my own strength, and then I'll figure out, I'll cross that bridge. Death, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. Let me tell you, that's a little bit too late. We got somebody. Who crossed the bridge. We got somebody who conquered man's greatest enemy. And his name is Jesus, so our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. Okay? And we come and we celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now back in John chapter 20, so the importance of the resurrection, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope, because if there's no resurrection, in the end, death wins. Now that first Easter morning, the tomb was found empty. And you could read this when you get home. You read John chapter 20, verses 1 uh, through verse 18, and you find that, you know, Mary Magdalene is crying, the tomb is empty, and um, she tells the apostles, Peter and John, run to the tomb, they find it's empty, they see the, the grave clothes, do some research on the Shroud of Turin, you want to find out about the grave clothes, okay? Um, but whatever the case, John just saw the grave clothes and he believed. Everybody else, they needed to see the, the risen Jesus before they would believe but she's crying. She thinks she's talking to the gardener a little later after the apostles leave, and it's Jesus. And she recognizes him when he calls her name, Mary. I mean, you don't expect to see a guy walking around and talking a couple days after he's been killed. But when she mentioned her name, I'm sure Jesus said her name in a way that nobody else said it. And so she was a good sheep who uh, recognized the voice of her shepherd. And then she was clinging on him so, so tight. And he's like, look, I, I got an appointment in heaven with my father. Um, you're going to do a face plan if I just disappear on you right now. Let go, lady. Okay? And um, she reminds me a little bit of Jacob wrestling with God for a blessing. Mary didn't want didn't to let go. And... Uh, but now the apostles, you know, they're hearing these stories and they're thinking, man, I don't know about this. And, uh, and they're still hiding. And so pick it up at verse 19, John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day, that was the day in which he rose, that first Easter Sunday. Then that same, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Okay? And um, first day of the week, that's Sunday for the Jews. It's the first day of the week. It was later on, you can read in the book of Revelation, the book of Acts, they started calling it the Lord's Day. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. Okay? In fact, most, if not all, of his post-resurrection appearances were on Sundays. So the, the first century Jews, you know, the church was made up of, uh, of, of Jews, Orthodox Jews, and their primary worship day was Saturday, celebrating God's work of creation. God created the world in six days, and then God rested on the seventh day. So God commanded the Jews in the Ten Commandments, work for six days and rest on the seventh day. Okay? And, um, you know, back in ancient times, Guys were so diligent, they'd work 365 days a year if you had let them. And, uh, but why did the church, which was made up of, of 
of Jews, Orthodox Jews, changed the primary worship day from Saturday to Sunday, and that's because an event as big or bigger than the creation event occurred. And if it wasn't Jesus' bodily resurrection, I don't know what it was. Okay? But on the first day of the week, uh, which became the Lord's Day, uh, the doors were locked, they're in the upper room, and Jesus appears to them. Now, the apostles were hiding out of fear, and then Jesus appeared to them and said, Peace be with you. Okay? And let me say uh, two things about this. You know, peace be with you. You know, the, the word in the Hebrew is shalom. Uh, it's Irene. We get our, our, the name Irene from it in the Greek. And uh, John wrote his gospel in Greek. But I think when Jesus was around his buddies, the apostles, I think they spoke Hebrew to each other. So, so all Jesus is doing is just giving them the Hebrew greeting, shalom. Okay, Paul later on will greet people with grace and peace to you. He takes grace, charis, unmerited favor. Okay, that was the greeting of the Gentiles. And he joined it with shalom, peace of the Jews. Okay, and, and, uh, but, but basically that's what we want in life. I mean, the normal people. There's some people who want to uh, rule the world. You know, they got this master mentality. They just want to rule the world. Um, but most people just, just want peace. They want peace within. They want peace with other people. But the most important peace is peace with God. And so uh, Jesus, by saying peace be with you, is just saying shalom. He's just giving them that Jewish greeting. But that, I mean, but that Jewish greeting is packed with we need peace with God. And someday through peace with God, we'll have peace with our fellow man. That's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Okay? Um, and now the doors were locked in the upper room. L look, look again at 1 Corinthians 15. I, I, I just wanted you to understand, you know, when we say that Jesus could go through walls in his resurrection body after he rose from the dead, he, he rose in the same body in which he was crucified because he still had those wounds. Okay? Yet, his mortal body put on immortality. And he did more than just go through walls. Okay? Go, going through, Jesus was not outside the upper room, looked around, made sure nobody was looking, floated up in the air, and then, and then just kind of went through the wall. Okay? It's much bigger than that. Okay? It's just like when Jesus told Mary earlier in this chapter, in John chapter 20, Stop clinging to me. I, need to, I haven't ascended yet. He wasn't expecting her to cling on to him for 40 days. He's just basically going back and forth to the Father's presence. Um, now, the last time he did that, he slowed things down. And he just went up into the clouds, what we call the ascension. And then he was in the Father's throne room. Now, he didn't just slowly ascend and keep doing that, because if he did, he, still, he, he hasn't gotten to heaven yet. So he just got out of their view, and then he was in the Father's presence. So with our immortal bodies, what I'm basically saying is, when we see Jesus, we'll be like him, uh, and our resurrection bodies will be able to travel at the speed of thought. So they will be real physical bodies, but they won't be natural, they'll be supernatural. We'll have the ability to, you know, if I say Hawaii, you could think of, in your mind, try to go to Hawaii, but you're still stuck in Bremerton. Okay, 
with, uh, with your immortal body. You want to be in Hawaii, you think Hawaii, you're in Hawaii. Okay? And, um, and so, um, uh, but 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 54. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. We, our bodies could not take it in heaven. Our bodies could not, our mortal bodies could not stand being in the presence of a holy God. Okay? Uh, so our flesh and blood, our present state, something, something needs to change. Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So the full conquering of death. Jesus had raised people from the dead before, but they came back to life in their mortal bodies so that they died again later on. Okay? Uh, but with the immortal body, when our mortal bodies put on immortality, we'll never ever die again. We'll have imperishable bodies. We'll have bodies that can travel uh, at the speed of thought, like, uh, like King Jesus. Now, Jesus proved to the apostles, back in John chapter 20, he proved to the apostles that he had risen. Um, John 20, verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Okay, these were the wounds in which he died. So it was the same body, though the body was transformed, the, the mortal body put on immortality. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus was willing to give his followers and even some skeptics many convincing proofs that he had risen from the dead. We don't have time to look at it, but you get a chance to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Over a period of 40 days, either primarily... On Sundays, or always on Sundays, but Jesus would appear and gave many convincing proofs that he had conquered the grave. Don't ever let somebody convince you that the apostles believed just because they saw an empty tomb. It took an empty tomb and a risen Christ. It took an empty tomb and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. You talk about skeptics, the apostles were skeptics until they saw him risen from the dead. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 15, that chapter on the resurrection, verses 3 to 8, gives a, an ancient creed which gives a summary list. It doesn't even list when, the, when Jesus appeared to the angels and uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's just a summary list, but 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, Paul says this, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Remember Isaiah 53 said Messiah. 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, the Old Testament Jewish prophet Isaiah said that Messiah would be slaughtered, would be killed for the iniquity of his people, for the sins of his people. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So he's saying that was predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus makes a big point out of that, that Messiah is going to, the Old Testament not only taught Messiah is going to suffer and die, but he's also going to rise from the dead. And that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, then by the twelve. So apparently he had appeared to Peter even before this appearance later that night. Okay? Uh, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James as the half-brother of Jesus, who mocked Jesus until that point. When you when you see your dead brother risen from the dead, it's, it's, it's time to uh, change your thinking. Your perspective changes slightly there. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. That's the second time. That's when Downing Thomas is going to be there. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul adds his own experience of seeing the risen Christ on the road to Damascus when he got saved. But this is an ancient creed that goes back to the earliest days of Christianity. Some scholars date it to within three to seven years of the crucifixion. Other scholars, even liberal scholars like Gerd Ludmann and uh, the late Marcus Borg of the Jesus Seminar, anti-Christian scholars, they date this creed to within one year of the crucifixion. So if you want to know, you know I, ch I challenged through Campus Crusade for Christ Marcus Borg to a debate at the school that he taught at uh, Oregon State University, and um, but he just didn't didn't take the debate. Um, didn't say yes that he would take it. Didn't say no. He just never showed up. But that was my, my whole case was going to be. You acknowledge that the early apostles believed that they saw Jesus risen, risen from the dead, and I'm just going to let the audience decide. You want to side with Peter and Paul or Marcus Borg? And Marcus Borg might have been a big wig, European-trained scholar, you know, with PhD after his name. He's a hot shot, and this and that. And his book sold a lot, and all. Um, but to quote my my grandma Aquino, next to the Apostle Paul, you could look at Marcus Borg and say, "You ain't got nothing." Okay, that's not good English. That's not good English, but applied in this context is good theology. Okay, you know, so that's for me and my house, we're going to side with the Lord. That's for me and my house, we're going to side with Peter and Paul. Okay, they got it right. Okay, uh, C.S. Lewis said that today's biblical scholars have become such experts that uh, between, at reading between the lines when they read the Bible, that they no longer remember what the lines say anymore. Okay, so, um, so be careful who you listen to. Uh, but basically, this is many convincing proofs that Jesus gave. He, he rose from the dead, the tomb was empty, the body was gone, and then he appeared uh, to his disciples. And now here, back in John chapter 20, he showed them his wounds and they rejoiced that he had, had risen. Then Jesus gave the apostles instructions in verses 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, uh, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Okay, a lot. You could preach, you could write books on those topics, okay? Uh, but Jesus gave the apostles instructions. Again, he wishes them shalom, the Jewish greeting, Irene in the Greek. He sends or commissions them. Just as God the Father sent out God the Son to save mankind, now the Son sends us out. You know, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he sends us out into all nations, okay, um, preaching the gospel, uh, making disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that Jesus commanded us. And then Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he sent out the apostles and commissioned them. He temporarily empowered them with the Holy Spirit. Why do I mean temporarily? Because in Acts chapter 2, they get the permanent baptism with the Holy Spirit and in filling with the Holy Spirit and empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So when you get a chance, read Acts chapter 2. And then he gave them power to forgive sin. Now keep in mind, what did you do back then if you wanted your sins forgiven? You went to the temple and placed yourself under the authority of the Jewish priesthood and you had the Jewish priest offer animal sacrifices. Now, the book of Hebrews says that the bloodshed of animals never took away sin. All it did was, it's like God saying, you want your sins to be forgiven? Then out of obedience, just trust in me and out of obedience, offer the blood of animals. Okay? That won't take away your sins, but it'll show you're trusting in me to someday send you the ultimately worthy Lamb of God. God the Son, who would offer himself once for all for the sins of all mankind. Okay? And so back then, if you wanted your sins forgiven, you said, well, I trust God, I don't understand everything, but I trust God, I'll go to the temple and have the priest offer a sacrifice. Now Jesus is saying, Old Testament priesthood, um, uh, I'm fulfilling the law, I'm the ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice. Now I'm going to... now. What do we do as, as priests? We're all kingdom of priests. We don't have a distinct priesthood. We're all priests. According to Peter, says it himself in the scriptures, a kingdom of priests. But how do we as priests do the service of our priesthood? We pray for others. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And we preach the gospel. And so what he's doing is he's saying now, if you preach Jesus, you preach the gospel to others, if they accept it, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. If they accept it, their sins are forgiven. If they reject it, they remain lost. Okay? He's not giving power to individuals so that they could hold it over people. Okay? And say, if you don't jump through the right hoops, um, I'm not going to give you forgiveness. Okay? And... Um, and so no longer the temple sacrifice. That's why Peter could say in Acts 2.38, just repent. Turn from your sin of rejecting Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved. Paul says it in Acts 16.31. No need to go to the temple. Just believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And, um, and so by giving us the gospel, which has the power to save and forgive sins. Jesus gives his church the power to forgive sins. Now, the apostle Thomas was not present. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin, 
One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. Okay? So, the apostle Thomas was not there. By the way, in that first appearance to the twelve, the twelve became an official title of the apostles. Okay? And, um, and, but Thomas wasn't there that first time. Okay? Um, he was called a twin. Uh, believe me, we don't know why he was called a twin. All kinds of speculation is based on this. Some say, oh, maybe he, was, uh, he looked just like Jesus, and that's why they needed Judas to kiss Jesus so that the, uh, the scribes, and the, I mean, so that the uh, temple priests could arrest the right guy. Uh, but the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, he is grouped together. There's times when only brothers are grouped together with the Greek word Kai. Um, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Matthew and Thomas. So some think he may have been Matthew, uh, Matthew's brother, and some think he might have been Matthew's twin brother. All I can say is he was probably somebody's twin, and they called him the twin, okay? But, you know, I don't know what to do with it. I mean, back in Jersey, if they called you tiny, you weren't tiny, you know? And... Uh, it, uh, even up here, there was a guy we used to call Little John. Little John was about 6'5", weighed about 320 pounds. And um, so, I don't know, they called him the twin, so whatever. That was his nickname there. Um, but let me say this about him. Doubting Thomas was brave and was committed to the Lord. You might say, well, I, where are you getting this from? Well, just study the Gospels. Just look at you're going to find this guy is brave. By the way, you know, it's like the apostles are, are hiding under beds in the upper room, the doors are locked, and they realize, oh man, we got to eat. I don't want to come out of hiding. And then Thomas is like, all right, I'll run the errands. So, you know, keep in mind, this dude's a tough dude. When they're hiding, he's out there, you know. We're, we're tough on doubt, doubting Thomas, he's a doubter. Not like me, I don't doubt. And uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. Never, I'll never do that, Jesus. We sound just like Peter right before he denied Jesus three times. But keep, keep in mind, okay, hopefully none of us are as bad as Judas. We've got 12 apostles. Hopefully, hopefully none of us are, are going to betray Jesus and end up spending the eternity in hell, okay? So we want to finish in the top 11 somewhere, Okay? And, um, uh, well, Tom, the, the, the guy who did the best was the Apostle John. He followed Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, into the high priest's house, and then he even followed him to the cross, ultimately, but probably was, probably was there with, uh, with Jesus uh, when Jesus was on trial before Pilate. I don't know how else we would have gotten the information. If the other apostles witnessed the crucifixion, they were probably you know, half a mile away. Some, on some hill watching it or something. Thomas went all the way to the cross with Jesus. Peter was second place. He went in behind enemy lines into the high priest's courtyard. And then they recognized him because he was the guy who cut off the high priest's servant's ear. A guy named Malchus. And, um, um, but I, I think most of us would have probably, I know I would have been with the other nine apostles hiding under beds. 
You know? I'm not, you, you know, so, so again, you know, it's like I always say, you can't fumble from the bench. Okay? If you're on the bench and you're not good enough to be on the field, don't make fun of the running back when he fumbles the ball. Okay? And um, I think most of us would have been on the bench. We would have been under beds and hiding. So don't be too tough on Peter and don't be too tough on Thomas because although he was hiding under a bed, when it came time for somebody to run the errands, apparently he was the guy. Okay? Here's another indication that Thomas was no wimp. Uh, look at John 11. Just a few days earlier than this, John 11. Verses 14 to 16. He just gets word that Lazarus is sick. So verse 14, Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Well, Jesus is saying, I'm saying, I'm going to go ruin another funeral. You know, Jesus is always ruining the bad habit of ruining funerals. He'd show up, raise the guy from the dead, then you got, you know, 10 years later, you got to do the funeral all over again. And, um, um, but he's got to go back to Jerusalem with the Jewish religious leaders have a death warrant out for him. Okay? So what does Thomas say? Then Thomas, who was called the twin, again, we don't know why he's called the twin. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is, this is not a coward. This is a guy who's saying, look, Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. We're getting pretty close to enemy territory if we go out there but if our rabbi, if Jesus is going to go and get himself killed, then uh, let's go and get ourselves killed with him as well. Okay? So, uh, so this is a guy who was brave and committed to the Lord. Okay? Uh, verse 25, John chapter 20, verse 25. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Okay? So he, he didn't believe the other apostles. He refused to believe until he saw Jesus and touched his wounds. That was what he was saying. He said, I'm, he's, he's saying for me, seeing is believing. Without empirical evidence... Evidence verified by the five senses, I will not believe that Jesus is, rose, is risen from the dead. Now, based on what he said in John chapter 11, I think what we see here is that Jesus is saying that, 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 that Thomas is the kind of guy who is like, look, you guys don't understand. We put all our eggs in one basket. We thought Jesus was the Messiah. Now he's dead. We put our lives at risk. I'm, I'm willing to go out and run the errands for you guys. So you guys don't understand. I'm not going to believe just because you tell me. I'm the kind of guy, when I believe something, I'm all in. And if I'm going to believe that he rose from the dead, I'm going to get killed for believing that he rose from the dead. And by the way, Thomas was later martyred. I have to check it out on a Sean McDowell and... and Stuart McBurney wrote a good book on, 
on the traditions about the apostles afterwards, but I think Thomas was in India, killed by Brahmin priests. So he was preaching to Hindus. Um, this is one tough dude, but he's basically saying, look, guys, I got to be sure. Because if I'm sure he rose from the dead, they're not going to be able to shut me up, guys. If I'm convinced that Jesus of Nazareth really is the Jewish Messiah and that he has conquered the grave, then I'm all in. And if I'm all in, they're going to kill this guy someday. And by the way, we might be in that same situation in the near future. Where if you're all in for Jesus, your life expectancy is going to take a nosedive. And so what do we do? We preach Jesus. We preach Jesus. And so, he, but he's the kind of guy, man, I'm not going to believe unless I see it myself. I need empirical evidence. So verse 26 of John 20. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. So again, he gives them uh, that greeting. So a week later, and by the way, the Jews, when they would say eight days later, that's the way we would say seven days later. They always included, if you start on, a, um, on the first and Jesus came on the eighth, they would include that first day with the other days. Okay, That's just the way they did things. So this is another Sunday um, when Jesus appeared. A week later, Jesus again appeared to the apostles and he gave Thomas the evidence he requested. Um, so verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Because again, when they crucified Jesus, they pounded spikes uh, either through the lower palm of his hand coming out the wrist or straight through the wrist. Okay, we've done, we've learned an awful lot about the ancient uh, uh practice uh, called crucifixion through studying the Shroud of Turin. And at least on the back, it's got to come out through the wrist so it can go through two bones and support the weight of a human body. Okay? And, um, but he's going to have the holes in his hands, the holes in his feet, and then the pierced side because they didn't break his ankle. Had they broken Jesus' ankle when he was on the cross to hasten his death because you can only breathe when you push up off a block of wood that your feet are uh, nailed to. And um, so they saw he was already dead, so they pierced his side, and that's where the flow, the flow of blood and water came out, which is modern medical evidence that he was dead from experiments on cadavers. Uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, late 1800s, late 1900s, confirmed that Jesus of Nazareth was dead before they took him down from the cross because you don't get that gentle flow of blood and water unless the person's already dead. There's a transparent, liquidy substance in the pericardium. It surrounds the heart. And, but it, if the heart's pumping, it immediately mixes blood with it. You pierce the side of a live person, and the blood either gushes out, squirts out, pours out, but to get a gentle flow of blood alongside what looks like water, um, the heart isn't pumping, and it's not blending the blood with the, uh, the transparent liquid, the serum of the um, pericardium. And so Jesus of Nazareth was, 
was dead before he was taken down from the cross. Now, had they broken his ankle, he would have been disqualified, according to Exodus chapter 12, from being the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb could have no broken bones. Okay? And by the way, back then, a broken bone meant a broken bone. You know, I've had hairline fractures, fractured knuckles, okay, fractured toes. None of those would count in ancient times as broken. When, so when a bone breaks, I mean, it's just, it's a clean break. And, uh, and, uh, but they didn't break Jesus' ankle. They pierced, um, pierced his side. So Jesus invited Thomas to touch his wounds, okay? Uh, by the way, uh, we find in Matthew 28, and verse 9, um, that the disciples, when they saw him, they, they touched him. Um, Luke 24, look, look, look real quick at Luke chapter 24. Gospel of Luke chapter 24. Starting at verse 36. This is a different account here um, of, um, of possibly that first appearance. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. So they thought he was just a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it, and ate in their presence. So Jesus went way out of the way to give them many convincing proofs that he had risen. He encouraged them to touch his body. Okay? Um, he even told, he said, look, your eyes see me. I'm not a spirit or a ghost. Um, and then he even ate food uh, in their midst. Remember Mary Magdalene, she, in the, earlier in this chapter, she was clinging to Jesus. Okay, his resurrection was bodily. That's why when he, uh, when he cleansed the temple, they said, well, give us a sign. Give us a miracle to prove that you have the authority to cleanse the temple. And he said, sure, destroy this body, I'll raise it up in three days. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. Instead, he was talking about the temple of his, John says, body. And so Jesus' resurrection from the dead was a bodily Resurrection, and he was more than willing to give them evidence that he had risen from the dead. Now, look at First John chapter one. First John. This goes back towards the book of Revelation. First, second, and third John. Small letters. Then there's Jude, and then the book of Revelation. But First John chapter one. In verses 1 to 3, that, that which was from the beginning, John talked about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's going back to the Gospel of John there. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. What he's basically saying is, look, Jesus is the pre-incarnate word. God, the second person of the Trinity, become a man and he proved to us that he is eternal life. And John's saying, I want to share this with you because... This is what we heard with our ears. This is what we saw with our eyes. And this is what our hands have handled. And so I believe what John's saying is, just to make sure, just to make sure, it's like, look, if we're going to die for you, Jesus, die preaching the gospel, we want to make sure you conquered death. And so I actually think that they took up Jesus' offer and actually did touch his risen body and so uh, so back in John chapter 20 Jesus invited Thomas to touch his wounds uh, now the fact of the matter is though Tom sh- Thomas should have already believed based on eyewitness reliable testimony okay he, he needed that empirical evidence but that empirical evidence is not always available it wasn't available to us we couldn't see Jesus risen from the dead. He didn't appear bodily to us. Okay? And um, so look at Thomas's response, because Jesus says, hey, all right, Thomas, you want to touch my wounds? Go ahead. Touch my wounds, but don't be unbelieving, but believing. And then in verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. I love that expression so much that in the Greek, it's hakoriasmu kahathiasmu, the Lord of me and the God of me. Okay? I love that so much that for the shield, for the institute, the logo, for the Institute of Biblical Defense, I put that there. Hakoriasmu kahathiasmu. He said, he's telling Jesus, you're my Lord and my God. You know what? John wrote this in Greek. Hakoriasmu kahathiasmu. Uh, but I think Jesus would have that, that Doubting Thomas would have spoke Hebrew to Jesus. And so more than likely, he's calling Jesus his Yahweh and his Elohim to the Old Testament titles for God. In fact, Zechariah 14.5, and then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him when all nations invade Israel in the last days. The Old Testament in the Hebrew, Zechariah, um, he, he says the Lord my God will come when Jesus the second coming He calls Jesus Yahweh and Elohim. You look at the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And uh, the Lord my God, uh, it's Yahweh and Elohim are translated as Koryas and Theos. By the way, it's almost the exact same words. Koryas mu, Theos mu. Thomas, let me tell you something about Thomas. He not only was brave, yeah, he was, he was a, kind of a jerk and a little skeptical. And I, Unless I see, you guys are a bunch of nuts. Unless I see for myself, I'm not going to believe. It's like, Thomas, you've been spending day and night with these guys for three and a half years. They're reliable, sincere, truthful guys. 
You got reliable eyewitness testimony that Jesus is risen, which is, by the way, what we have today. Reliable eyewitness testimony. You know, you got four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You, you, you know, if, if there was only one Gospel, the complaint would be, well, you only have one witness. You get four Gospels, you get 27 New Testament books, so then they complain, well, maybe this guy didn't write this, maybe that guy didn't write that. And they get into all kinds of wild speculation. Why? You know, it's just like uh, Norman Geisler said in one debate that... Um, People who deny the resurrection. When the Apostle Paul said, and everybody agrees, Paul wrote that, 1 Corinthians, about 55 A.D. He's quoting a creed from the early 30s A.D., not long after the crucifixion. And so, um, Norman Geisler said in a debate, it's, it's, like, it's like the skeptic is saying, besides all the evidence you have, eyewitness testimony from over 500 people, Besides all the eyewitness testimony you have, you don't have a case. Okay? Yeah, but a case is built on what? Evidence. We've got evidence. Like uh, Josh McDowell said, evidence that demands a verdict. So doubting Thomas, this guy could do the math. Okay, now I see that he's risen. I could touch his wounds. Okay, now I'm willing to preach him and be willing to die because Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Savior, he is the Jewish Messiah, and he did the math. He is my Lord and my God. He started to realize, at the point that Jesus rose, he started realizing when he predicted, at least on three different occasions, he was going to die and rise, I should have taken him literally. But then Thomas is like, what did he just tell us a few days ago? In John 14, 15 and 16, He's not talking in metaphor, figures of speech. He's literally claiming to be God, and he's saying he's going to prove it by rising from the dead. Now look how Jesus, in John chapter 20, and verse 29, how Jesus responds to doubting Thomas. So verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed so he's saying, you call me your Lord and your God. Obviously, Thomas, you believe. You're trusting in me now. Because you have seen me, you, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay? Now, Jesus says, look, you, be, you believe because you see me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. In other words, Jesus is saying there is sufficient evidence to believe um, that Jesus is our risen Savior and God the Son, even apart from physically seeing, seeing him and touching his body. Now, G Jesus is not promoting blind faith. He's not promoting blind faith, but what he's saying is you don't have to have empirical evidence to believe. You shouldn't need empirical evidence to believe. Okay? And so Jesus is saying, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Uh, he's saying, look, you got the reliable eyewitness testimony of your buddies, the apostles and others. And there's a few ladies running around, screaming, he is risen. And the apostles, until they saw him bodily in, in front, they didn't believe. Jesus is saying, look, I predicted that I would die and rise from the dead numerous times. 
John chapter 2, destroyed his temple, I'll raise it up in three days. Uh, I think it was in Matthew 12, where he said, I'll give you the sign of, of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth um, for three days until he rises. Um, uh, and then on three different occasions, Jesus just came right out and said, look, we're going to Jerusalem. The Jewish religious leaders are going to kill me, and I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. And they're just like, yeah, whatever. And then they change the subject. In fact, Peter, Caesarea Philippi, after Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus said, you know, wow, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father who's in heaven revealed this to you. And then Jesus says, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Jewish leaders are going to kill me, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And then Peter rebukes him. And Jesus has to tell him, get behind me, Satan. So God the Father spoke through Peter. A few minutes later, Satan spoke through Peter. So you better be careful. You better be diligent in your walk uh, with the Lord. But Jesus, he's like telling Doubting Thomas, look, you should have believed that I was going to rise from the dead even before I rose from the dead. I predicted it at least three times. Weren't you guys paying attention? And then Jesus is looking at the apostles. He's like, he's like saying, who are these guys, Thomas? You know these guys. They have nothing on earth to gain by making up a story about seeing Jesus alive after his death. These are sincere, reliable eyewitnesses. Men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. Okay? If you're lying and they're going to kill you, execute you because of your lie, you admit, hey, guys, guys, come on, you can't take a joke? I was lying. Okay? But these guys were sincere enough in their beliefs to die for them. By the way, there's a lot of guys like uh, Muslim terrorists who are sincere enough in their beliefs to die for them. Okay? The problem is, though, with this... I can come up with lots of good reasons how they could be sincere but wrong. How the Quran has all kinds of issues, put Jesus in the same, uh, made him a contemporary of Noah and Moses, had no idea of Bible chronology, all the contradictions in the Quran. I could come up with lots of reasons why those Muslims were wrong. With the apostles, on the other hand, how could they be mistaken when they thought they really, they really believed they saw Jesus risen from the dead? And every alternative explanation has failed. Okay? Whether it's the swoon theory that he didn't die, the blood and water proves that he died before he was taken down from the cross. The hallucination theory, no two, two or more people can't share the same hallucination. Jesus appeared to groups of people. It's easy to talk people out of hallucinations. The apostles died for what they saw and, and believed. And uh, so men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. They really believe they saw the risen Christ. And so Downing Thomas should have believed that Jesus would rise because Jesus predicted it. And also the reliable eyewitness testimony of the apostles and others. But then Jesus points out numerous times after he rose from the dead that you should believe 
in my resurrection because it was predicted in the Old Testament. Look at the Luke 24. Luke 24. Verses 25 to 27. This is when Jesus appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So this is earlier before he appears to the apostles. And um, Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ, the Messiah to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What he's basically saying is, you shouldn't be surprised that I died and rose from the dead because it was recorded for you hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament prophets. That Messiah would come, die for the sins of his people, and then uh, rise from the dead. Further in Luke 24, when he appears the first time to the apostles, um, verses 44 to 47, after he ate food in their presence, a passage we read earlier, then he said to them, verses 44 to 47 of Luke 24, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So he's saying everything that was written about me in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before I walked the face of the earth, um, you should have believed all that was written. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he says, you're my witnesses of these things. But he tells them that this... So Jesus sat down and taught the apostles. These are the Old Testament passages that taught about my resurrection and you guys missed them. Okay? Now we don't have time to look there, but in Psalm 16.10, I'm pretty sure that was one of the passages Jesus covered. Because King David said in Psalm 16, verse 10, that God would not allow his Holy One's body to see decay. Guess what? On the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the crucifixion, when the church gets baptized with the Holy Spirit, Peter tells, quotes that verse and says, you can go and visit David's tomb to this day. If David wasn't talking about his own body, he was talking about another. Now, this is King David, the king of, the, of God's chosen nation. If he's not talking about himself, whoever he's talking about has got to be really, really important. And what he's basically doing, Peter's basically telling the people, you don't believe me, go visit Jesus' grave. It's empty. The tomb is empty. Joseph Arimathea's tomb is empty. But that passage... God would not allow his Holy One's body to see decay. By the way, Lazarus was in the tomb four days, so he really stunk. Because in that part of the world, okay, it takes that long. It takes to the fourth day before the body starts decaying. If God's not going to allow his Holy One's body to see decay, 
he's got to raise him from the dead on the third day or earlier. Okay? And uh, we don't have time to look there, but Isaiah 53, uh, and in verse 10, it talks about the suffering Savior is going to die for the iniquities of his people. So he's going to die for his people, yet it says that God will prolong his days. Um, I remember, I think he was uh, eight years old at the time, my grandson Nathan is sitting back there. We went to go see the Dead Sea Scrolls in the uh, Seattle Science Center. And I didn't know if the people behind me were Christians or Jews or atheists. So when I came up to Isaiah 53, which, by the way, they didn't want to offend anybody, so they put it down as Isaiah 54. But it was Isaiah 53. And I said to Nathan, I said, Nathan, look at this. It says that Messiah is going to die for the sins of his people, but then God's going to prolong his days. How could God prolong the Messiah's days if he's dead? And my grandson Nathan said, by raising him from the dead. And I said, right. And then that group of people left and another group of people came. So I went through the whole thing again with my grandson. He thought I was a nut. He was like... And so when I asked him the question, he said again, by raising him from the dead. And, um, and, and so basically Jesus is saying... You should know from the Old Testament that Messiah will come and he will die and he will rise from the dead. Okay? That's why 1 Corinthians 15 says that not only would he die for our sins according to the scriptures, but he'd be buried and rise from the dead according to the scriptures. Okay? And so uh, Jesus is making it very clear from the Old Testament predictions of, the re of Messiah's resurrection from Jesus' predictions of his resurrection and from the reliable eyewitness testimony of the apostles and others, Thomas had enough evidence to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead even without seeing his body. And I am glad for that. Because why do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because of the Old Testament prophecies, because Jesus predicted his death numerous times, and because of reliable eyewitness testimony spread throughout the New Testament that Jesus is risen from the dead. Be careful about asking God for more evidence when the amount of evidence God has already given you is sufficient. It is adequate. Okay? Every once in a while, God will say, you know what? For those skeptics who need empirical evidence, I'll appear to them. And, um, and he did that. Uh, even even did that to one skeptic about a year later, the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul on the road to Damascus. And um, uh, today, if you're that type of skeptic, I think you're be, you're asking for too much evidence. But I would I would really encourage you research the Shroud of Turin, and don't let the carbon fourteen dating fool you. I'm in conversation with some of the world's leading scientists who want it redated. There's one guy, one scientist out of an Ivy League school says, you can't get an accurate carbon-14 dating unless you knows what, know what caused the image, and we can't reproduce it today. And now they've done the math and figured out what kind of bombardment of radiation coming from a corpse would put the image of Christ with three-dimensional information on the cloth. Okay? And... Um, um, but whatever the case, if you need empirical evidence, 
I encourage you look into the Shroud of Turin, and um, and I think that you'll see that there are there is incredible evidence that the Shroud of Turin enclosed, encased, at one time a corpse that was in the state of rigor mortis, but there's no decomposition on the cloth, so uh, the body had not seen decay, and um, the blood clots remain intact, so they couldn't have just taken it off. Uh, but somehow the image is there. By the way, if we found Lazarus's shroud, just as we found some shrouds from ancient times, um, you're not going to find an image because the life returned to the mortal body of Lazarus. With Jesus, you have a full, not only you have the full-blown resurrection, and it just it's not just a mortal body coming back to life, but it's the putting on of immortality, this regeneration of. Uh, of mortal flesh and transfiguring it and um, we, we do not have the medical technology to reproduce the image uh, on the shroud so if you want uh, if you need eyewitness evidence uh, uh, just just talk to me I'll point you in the direction of some some people you could actually talk to some books you can read about that now how do we apply this how do we learn the, this lesson from Downing uh, Thomas John gives us that application in verses 30 and 31. Look at verse 30, John chapter 20, verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So he gives us seven main miracles plus the resurrection. But he said, look, in the presence of his disciples, Jesus performed many miracles beyond this. Well, why did I write these down to you? Verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so Jesus performed many miracles, many other miracles not recorded in John's gospel, but John recorded, reported these miracles so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed, the one that God anointed to rescue Israel, but he is also the Son of God. And when you study that, you find out the Son of God is one and the same with God the Son, God the second person of the Trinity, become a man. And, uh, and that by trusting in Jesus, we receive eternal life. So Jesus gave us evidence that he is God, he is Savior, and he is Messiah. What evidence? He performed miracles. He fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that were written hundreds of years before he walked the earth. And then uh, he bodily rose from the dead. What kind of evidence did he give us for his resurrection? You have the empty tomb and his post-resurrection appearances to reliable eyewitnesses. They were so reliable and so sincere, they were willing to die proclaiming the risen Christ. And so how should we apply this? We should trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Acts 14, 12 says there's no name, no other name under heaven whereby you can be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philippian jailer, he asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And uh, Paul said, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. If they believe, they'll be saved as well. And so we'll close with two verses from the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, 
verse 16, Jesus speaking, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay? We need to believe in the Lord Jesus, trust in him, commit to him, pledge our allegiance to him. We need to trust in him alone for salvation. And then John 14, 6. In fact, it's verses 5 and 6. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. And it was the question that Thomas asked. Uh, I am so glad Thomas asked this question. So we have Jesus' response to it. John 14, verses 5 and 6. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. You see, what the Bible teaches is that God created us perfect, but we blew it in the garden. Adam and Eve blew it in the garden, and they pass on to us corrupted sin nature, a sinful nature, so that we just do what comes natural to us. We sin. We have all sinned, each and every person here, each and every person in the world, and throughout human history. Our sin has earned us the eternal flames of hell. And so what did God do about that? He sent his son, God the son, to become a man, to die on the cross for our sins, and then he raised them from the dead to conquer death for us. That's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, and we do it in expectancy of his return. And so why do we celebrate Easter Sunday? Because the Lord Jesus Christ conquered man's greatest enemy, death. He conquered it by rising from the dead. And those who trust in him will someday receive the resurrection to life or receive our immortal bodies when he returns. Um, most of the world, a good portion of our culture in America today, thinks we're a bunch of nuts, a bunch of narrow-minded bigots. They've got it. They call us every name in the book right now just because we love Jesus with everything we got and we love our neighbor as ourselves. So I guess we're bad people. Okay? And they will mock us. Okay? But um, I remember growing up in Catholic Church, they would say, let us pro proclaim, you know, make the proclamation of faith as Christ has died Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Christ died. He died on the cross for your sins. If you walked into here today and you never trusted in Jesus for salvation, God loved you so much that he became a man, and he died on the cross for your sins. And if you don't know what that all entails, just go watch the Passion movie. Mel Gibson acknowledges he had to water down Christ's sufferings or nobody would want to watch it. 
Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for your sins, even though you don't deserve it, even though I don't deserve it. God became a man. He died for us. But he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. When a stone was rolled away, he wasn't even there. He had risen and he appeared to his disciples. Christ has died. Christ has risen. The world doesn't believe it. But Christ will come again. Trust in Jesus for salvation. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, serve and obey him. Live for Jesus, not yourself. Build his kingdom, not your own. Live to glorify him, not yourself. But I'm telling you, our Savior loves us. He died for us. But he is the risen Savior. And he's coming back. So the world can mock us all they want. Okay, someday they might lead you to your execution. And you can turn to the guard that's taking you to your death for preaching Jesus. And you can tell him, Lord Jesus, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And my king is a good king. But he is also a just king. And he is coming back. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I just pray, Lord, that uh, we see that human history does make sense. That there is a God who created us, that we rebelled against him, but that he sent a remedy. He provided a way for us to be saved by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins and by raising him from the dead to conquer death for us. And that he will return. So it's my prayer, Lord, that each and every one of us here would acknowledge we're sinners. We cannot save ourselves. But that we would trust in your son, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, took our punishment for us, and then rose from the dead to conquer death for us. And so it's my prayer that each and every one here would trust in Jesus alone for salvation. And that we would serve him through the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that the day will come when our king will return and will take his stand upon the earth to judge the living and the dead. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.